1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word now that speaks to us and confronts us on such a necessary issue. God, we pray that you would come by your spirit in power to transform our lives. God, help us to not gloss over these words, help them not to pass through one ear and out the other, Lord, but help us to actually be changed by them. And we need your help then, Lord, if that's to happen. And so we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, I do invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This morning, we are continuing in our study in 1 Corinthians. So for the last couple of weeks, uh, we took a break to kind of look at the events surrounding Easter. And then this morning, we pick our pick things back up in chapter 10, and we find ourselves in the middle of a section that actually began in chapter 8. So in chapter 8, Paul is responding to a question that this church in Corinth asked him, namely, hey Paul, can we eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol? So I found this piece of brisket at the marketplace. They said that they were sacrificed to Apollos. It looks tasty. Can I eat it? And Paul says, sure, go for it. Those idols are not real gods. They're just pieces of wood or stone or clay. And so that meat that's been sacrificed to them is is just meat. Go go ahead and, and eat the meat. But now Paul wants to give us a warning. He wants to basically say, look, just because the meat that's been sacrificed to idols is just meat... It doesn't mean that idolatry is not real. It doesn't mean that those practices surrounding the sacrifice, those those attitudes and hopes and desires associated with that sacrifice are not also real. And if you're not careful, you can get trapped in them and those those idols or that worship to that idol might lead you astray to, to lust after something else that is not God And ultimately, it will destroy you. 
Last week, the Wall Street Journal uh, published an article written by Daniel Henninger, great first name, called The Devil Resurfaces in Ukraine. The the Devil Resurfaces in Ukraine. Let me read you his opening paragraph. He says, evil fell into disrepute years ago. Evil implied the possibility of a devil, and both came to be seen as impediments to some forms of private personal behavior. So, we demoted evil and expanded the definitions of goodness. But, banishing the devil came with a price which is apparent as the world stares now into the abyss of human ruin in Ukraine. this This is what he goes on to explain. He basically says that, look, as a culture, we have tried to distance ourselves from the notion of evil. We give euphemisms or nicknames to evil. So mass shootings are gun issues. Theft, well, that's an economic issue. Racism is an education issue. And basically, he says, what we've done is we've, we've issued in the, uh, the issuefication of morality. The issuefication of morality. Every, every evil is actually not an evil. It's just an issue. And the reason we do that is because if the problems of this world are just issues, that means they're outside of us, and then we can just bring in something to fix that issue. No, no, I'm not denying that we should try to, as a society, do what we can to restrain evil. The the problem is this. The problem is that right now, especially, as you look at the issues in the world, and specifically as you look to Ukraine and you find bombs aimed at train stations, with words written on them, for the children. Like, like what, what's responsible for that? What, what, what issue br- brings that about in the world? We can't actually explain that, he argues, Look, this is in a secular newspaper without actually referencing evil. Evil is out there. If you look at history, or if you look at your own heart, you recognize that evil is there, and that unless we're regularly trying to fight against evil, it will come and destroy us. So one pastor said he had more trouble with himself than with any other man. The the evil inside of us is just as powerful as the evil out there. And so listen to his last line of the article. He writes this. The events in Ukraine have taught us this. If you give the devil a chance, he'll try to destroy you. Unless we are actively pursuing God, the devil will try to inflame the burning embers of evil in our heart, use that to lead us astray, and eventually to destroy us. So I want to look at three things this morning. I want to look at the danger of presumption, the devastation of idolatry, and lastly, the direction of our gaze. Firstly, 
the danger of presumption. Look, look at verse 1 again. Pick it up from the beginning here. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. So, so now he's going to give us a, a history lesson. He's going to give us a, a history on Egypt as they walked out of slavery in Egypt and, and, and walked through the wilderness into eventually the promised land. So he says this, our fathers were all under the cloud. Now that, that cloud references the, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. It was this cloud that followed Israel through the wilderness, protecting them. And, and most importantly, it, it was the very presence of God. It was the, the glory of God visibly manifest among them. You, you look at the cloud and you are reminded that, that God is present with them. Then he says this. We passed through the cloud, verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and in the sea. So, so immediately after Israel leaves Egypt... Pharaoh changes his mind and goes, ah, never mind, I actually don't want all of my free slave labor to walk out of town. And so he pursues them with his army. Now Israel is, has, has a Pharaoh and the army on one side and the Red Sea behind them. And so what does God do? He, he opens up the sea. He, he provides a, a way through the sea and, until the other side. And then basically God closes this Egyptian autobahn on, on Pharaoh and his armies and, and destroys them. And, and, and he says, look, look, they, were, they passed through the sea and, and they were identified with Moses, me meaning that they were recognized as though their leader were, were them. That he, he was their manifestation, their representation. And he says, look, if, if the cloud was the, the presence of God, well, the sea represented the power of God. And then he says this, verse Three, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So, so Israel now is on the other side of the Red Sea. They find themselves in the desert, and they need food. They need something to drink. And so God provides this bread-like substance called manna. Literally, it means what is it? They, they had never seen something like this. He, he gives them some quail for some protein, and he provides them with rock, or by, with, with water, by, by opening up a rock. And, and so not only did they have the presence of God, the power of God, they also had the provision of God. And yet, verse 5 says this, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's a massive understatement with most of them, literally all but two, failed to enter the promised land. Caleb and, and Joshua, that's it. The people forsook their God, and God said, okay, you don't want me with you, then good luck getting into the promised land. And so he leaves them, and Israel is then forced to walk around the wilderness for 40 more years with all but two bodies, scattered around on the desert sands. So wh why this history lesson? Well, verse 6 says this. Now these things took place as examples for us. Or verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example 
but they were written down for our instruction. See, see, Paul says, look, if you think of Israel's story and you think of our story, you realize that they are very similar. We've experienced the presence of God. Not, not in the cloud, but in the spirit. We've experienced the power of God. Not, not by walking through the Red Sea, but by, by experiencing the deliverance of our sins on the cross. We've experienced the provision of God. Not in manna or water from a rock, but in the bread of communion, of the wine of communion. And in case these Corinthians go, okay, okay yes, Paul, but, but we have Christ. And, and they didn't have Christ back then. He says in verse 4, yeah, yeah, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Actually, Christ was present with them in the rock. He, he hadn't come in the form of Jesus, but, but he was spiritually with them. The same Jesus that sustains us now is the Jesus that was sustaining them back then. And so he says, look, you need to hear this. Church, please hear this. Just because we have gone through these amazing spiritual experiences doesn't mean we are now immune from the possibility of sin. It can happen in the church and it can happen to us individually. We, we, can, we can have these great spiritual encounters with Jesus, maybe in a worship night. Maybe we're worshiping the Lord and we feel like, yes, God is present with me. I, I feel his presence. We experience him in, in our daily devotion. We read and we just feel like, yeah, God is speaking to me. He's, he's alive. Maybe we look back and, and we see the way God saved us. We go, that, that was clearly God. That's the only way that was possible. We look back on our baptism. We, we rest on that laurel. And we just think, look, I'm good. I'm good. I have God with me. I don't have anything to be worried about. I don't need to fret about sin. Sure, it's a little slip up here and there, but, but what's the big deal? And all of a sudden, we, are, we find ourselves back in the wilderness. Peter writes this in the book of 1 Peter. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. You know, you're, you know how you watch those animal documentaries and you see that antelope? And you, just, you just know that's the one that's going to get killed? Because they like zoom in on it and you're like, it's obvious now. Just, just hanging out, eating the grass, just life's good, nothing to be worried about. Man, I'm in the savannas, Life, life's good here. That, I know, that's me. <laughs> like the, the moment I get comfortable, the moment I stop actively fighting sin, I'm, I'm left for dead. I know I know. Look, I look at my life, and I, I just, all of my slip-ups, it's, it's when I'm, I get comfortable in life. Uh, I read a book, uh, and it talked about uh, the scientific process of slaughtering cows. So vegetarians and vegans, be, be, be warned here. Um, 
But basically, um, there's a lot of money in, in killing cows. And so what these uh, cattle farms would do, or these slaughterhouses would do, is they would pay scientists a lot of money to figure out how they can best and most gently slaughter these animals. And it's, it's not because they love cows. It's because that um, cows, when they die, emit a hormone that actually ruins the meat. And so they need to find a process to, to help the cow emit as little of that hormone as possible. And so basically the science said, scientists said this, look, we shouldn't use cattle prods and, and we shouldn't yell. They describe the process like this. The, the cow is gently led uh, in silence onto a ramp. They then pass through a squeeze chute, which is supposed to mimic their mother's nuzzling touch. Then they head down a smooth, curving path. There's no sudden corners. And then they feel as comfortable and as safe as possible. The, the scientist says it's like they feel like they're going home. And then a conveyor lifts them off the ground. They, they don't even notice that their feet aren't touching anymore. And in the blink of an eye, a surgical strike happens between their eyes. And livestock becomes meat. They name this process, get this, the stairway to heaven. See, see that moment where we are lulled into thinking nothing can go wrong, we're safe, I see, I see what God did for me in the past, it, this just feels all good and breezy, and we stop actively fighting sin, and we stop keeping a close eye on the way we're living, that's the moment we're in the most danger of falling into evil. And so what then is that evil Paul wants us to be warned about? Our second point is this, the devastation of idolatry. The devastation of idolatry. Look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Now, I recognize we can talk about idolatry, and many of us can check out and think that's obviously not something I struggle with. I don't have idols that I bow down to, so obviously idolatry is not something that I need to be worried about. But that's actually not really what idolatry is. See, one pastor, he put it this way. He said, idolatry is not so much about what you bow your knees to, it's what you lean your soul on. Let me, let me say that again. Idolatry is not so much about what you bow your knees to, it's about what you lean your soul on. You see, that word in verse 6, desire, that's, that, that's a Greek word called epithumia. And, and if we translate that word literally, it means super desire. Or, or, or super want. It's, it, it's this craving we have, and we say basically, look, I need that. Unless I get that thing, my life won't be fulfilled. And that's the beginning of idolatry. See, what idolatry normally does is it takes a good thing and it makes it an ultimate thing. It takes something that can just be originally a gift from God, and it then makes that very thing our God. It becomes a God replacement. 
We, we think we need that thing to satisfy us, to fulfill us, to, to protect us, to empower us. And so what we do then is we do whatever it takes. Because I need that thing. Without that thing, my life is not complete. And so we begin to cross boundaries. And so Paul actually gives two examples of Israel crossing boundaries. He says in verse 7 again, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, here's your first example, People sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. These events here, or that phrase, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, that's a quote from Exodus 32. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, that's the instant where Israel begins to make for themselves a golden calf. And after they make this golden calf, they basically have a drinking fest and a massive sexual orgy. That, that's what it means uh, they rose up to play. And then Paul alludes to another event. It's an event in chapter Numbers chapter 25. Again, Israel is having an, an orgy, except this time it's with Moabite women, with, with women who, who do not follow after the one true God. And Paul says, look, the, ins the, the, the result in both instances is that massive amounts of people died. You see, what Israel wanted is not so far away from what we want. It's companionship. They want companionship in the deepest and fullest sense. And so they turn marriages into idols. Marriage is a good thing, but, but we can make it an ultimate thing. We can basically say, look, unless my spouse makes me feel significant, important, and loved, then I'm not living. So, so marriage becomes the, the most important thing in our life. We turn our spouse into our God, and we look to them to satisfy us. Or if we're not married or maybe if, even if we are, and we're not getting those feelings, and we go outside of the marriage boundary, and we hook up because we need that companionship. And look, that companionship, that, that relational intimacy is a good thing, but Paul says, look, it's a danger if we make it an ultimate thing. But it's not just companionship that they were after. They also wanted safety and pleasure. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. This is the second example. And were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is an event that takes place in Numbers chapter 21. Israel is in the wilderness, they're wandering around, and, and all of a sudden they become afraid. They're terrified because they're in danger from every side. Anyone could come and, and attack them. And so they go, God, are you really going to protect us? Like, like, and so, so they begin to put God to the test. God, God show us that, that we're going to be actually safe. Now, it's, it's one thing to actually trust God for safety, but, but they're not trusting God here. They want God to give them something else that they can trust in. And so God attacks them by serpents. 
Or, or these people, be, or the Israelites begin to grumble. They're in the wilderness and, and they're going, God, all we've been eating for months on end is this bread and this quail and this water. Can we get something else? Like, God, don't you really care about how we feel, about what we want, what, what we need? And so they begin to grumble. And I think we do the same thing. Uh, we, we not only turn our marriages into gods, we turn our jobs into gods. We basically say, look, my success is going to determine my value in life. Or my success, me climbing the social ladder, is going to ensure that I'm secure and that I can have the lifestyle that I want. <laughs> And again, work is a good thing, but when it becomes an ultimate thing, we begin to work overtime to no end, even to the point of neglecting our families. We can become stingy instead of generous with our money because I need that money. That, that's what it's going to protect me. Or we lie and cheat to get ahead. We're not, we're not trusting in God. We're, we're looking to me. I'm my savior. See, we can turn anything into an idol. Children, our hobbies. Sometimes it's more subtle. For me, it's the approval of others. Just want to make sure I'm living up to everyone's expectations. Then, then I feel like I have value and worth in this life. And so we just look to other things, anything but God, to do what only God can do for us. So look, look, get this, look, God showed up in the cloud and in the sea and the food. He was their presence, their power, and their provider. And what did Israel want? They wanted companionship, presence. They wanted safety, power. And they wanted sustenance, provider. They were replacing God. And so let me just ask us, what are you epithumiaing? What, what are you craving? What are you super wanting? And saying, I'm, unless I get that, I'm not living. See, see the problem is, what, whatever that thing is, if it's not God, ultimately it will fail you. That's why Paul says, look, 23,000 people died in a single day. They were destroyed by serpents, he says. They were destroyed by the destroyer, the angel of death. And, and that maybe seems harsh at first. Like we, maybe we get it, okay, for, for the orgies, maybe, maybe that was fair. But like for testing God, for grumbling, like doesn't that seem a little extreme? If you go back to our, our slaughterhouse, um, it turns out scientists actually like to give tours of, of this event. I don't know why. They, they do that. But they said that uh, one woman was given a tour and she accidentally walked into the wrong room. She walked into what they call the blood room. It was, her, it was supposed to be the last stop and it was the first stop for her. And she was terrified. She said she, she saw the carnage, she smelt the blood and she felt nauseated and traumatized. And so what did the scientists do? He had to quickly rush her out of that room. He took her up to the catwalk and he showed her the peaceful stairway to heaven where the cows were tranquil and fine. And she says, quote, 
I didn't feel so bad after all. See, I, I think that's what the devil wants. The, the devil wants to cover our eyes from what really our future will be if we trust in anything but him. Right? So is, isn't that what, what uh, the serpent did to Adam and Eve? You will not surely die. You don't, don't have to worry about the end. It's, it's not that big of a deal. See, the devil doesn't want us to think that anything bad is going to happen. He wants to conceal the future of idolatry from us. And so what God does is he pulls back the curtain and he says, look, no, 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 don't you see what happened to Israel? Don't you see the, the devastation? See, if you make anything else your idol, let's take our spouse, for example, one, it will crush them. You will destroy your, your spouse because they can't live up to that. And they will crush you because you're not going to be left with what you really desire. So what, what does God do? He, he destroys Israel to basically say, I'm the only one you can trust. I'm the only one you can lean the weight of your life on. I'm the only one who won't fail you. I'm the only one who can satisfy your longings of life. I'm the only one who can ultimately save you. So he says in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. History is filled with examples of fortresses that have fallen because people thought they were indestructible. Take the wood horse and Troy, for example. Take the Acropolis in Sardis, this massive fortress on top of a mountain. People thought were impenetrable, except one day a soldier decided to accidentally drop his helmet, go down, retrieve it, only to let the enemies find out the secret path into the fortress. But maybe the clearest example in my mind takes place at Helm's Deep in Middle Earth in Lord of the Rings. I was listening to the soundtrack yesterday, so epic. <laughs> right? What, what did the King of Rohan say? These walls have never fallen. I'm never going to fall except there was one little crack in the wall, one little water grate. And what does the enemy do? He focuses all his energy on that one weakness. And that's what happens. Even if there's this one longing in our life that we want to be fulfilled apart from God, the enemy comes and he pushes hard on that one area. And he convinces us to to step across the boundaries and do whatever it takes to get that one thing. He tells us not that big of a deal, only to crush us and destroy us. Thirdly, then, the direction of our gaze. Uh, we can hear this warning of evil and I think be absolutely overwhelmed. Like, like honestly, you hear this and you're like, impossible. Um, like culture is increasingly getting more hostile. 
feels like the arrows are flying at us from, from all around. Not just culture, but I know my heart. I know the things that I'm given over to. These, these little temptations that, that I give in. I go, stand firm, take heed lest he fall, no way. I don't know how I'm going to do that. And so Paul actually gives us this great assurance at the end of this passage. He says this in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Uh, let me put it bluntly, and maybe, maybe this sounds harsh, but your sin struggle is not unique to you. Um, you, you don't have a special excuse for the sins that you're committing. Uh, no sin is uncommon to man. Now, your specific manifestation of that sin is unique to you. You, you know the struggle you face like no one else does. But that sin that you're going through, others have gone through that. And though that may sound harsh at first, I actually think it's very optimistic because others have found victory over that sin. And then he says this in verse 13 again. He says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Um, we can hear God provides a way of escape and think, great, that means I bypass the temptation altogether. And that's not actually what he says. He, he says the way of escape is the power to endure it. Um, often that means actually escaping that temptation is actually maybe harder than we think. The escape is, is fighting our way through a tunnel of temptation all around us, convincing us, trying to persuade us to go to one side or to the other. But God, he says, enables us to endure, to stay on that path and to make it through the tunnel into the light. That, that's what escaping temptation means. It actually means pressing through and not faltering. See, I, I think we, we hear this verse and we think, oh, we feel temptation and then it just washes over me like water on a duck's back. Or that there'll be some glorious way out. Like we're staring in front of the computer and then all of a sudden a power outage happens. Or, or, or we're about to, to text someone to get even because of the things they said to us, and all of a sudden they, they call us and apologize, and all is good. That, that's not the way we normally escape temptation. Th think back to Jesus in the wilderness, right? He's in the wilderness fasting for, for 40 days. He's trying to represent Israel and identify with them. He, he's going to make sure he doesn't test God by asking God to provide food for him and fail like Israel did. And, and what does the, the devil do? He comes to him. He's ugly. He's ugly. The, the devil shows up. Jesus is starving. The devil speaks scripture to Jesus. He, he twists it and distorts it and goes, just turn this rock into a piece of bread. 
in that moment, Jesus isn't all of a sudden not hungry anymore. It's not like some other food appears that he feasts on. No, he's still hungry in that moment. What, what does God do in return? God provides Jesus with scripture. He gives him a reminder of, of something greater. There's something greater than bread, namely God himself. Yes, you're hungry, but you have me. And, and so Jesus says, I want God more than I want the bread. I desire God more than I want that other thing. And so he says, look, God is faithful. One of the ways God helps us combat the sin of idolatry is, is showing us that he is faithful, that, that he is greater than whatever idol that thing is that we want, that he won't let us down, that he is worthy of life, not that other thing. See, the way God gives us escape is by often giving us himself. One, one uh, biblical counselor put it this way, we worship our way into sin and we must worship our way out of sin. Idolatry is worshiping our way into sin and we must worship our way out of sin. Have me, God says, I'm enough. I'm faithful, I'm greater. For me, honestly, what this looks like most of the time is I sing. <laughs> and while the sound of that may scare demons, that's not the point of it. Actually, it's that in that moment, I need to get my eyes off of that thing that I want and I need to look to Jesus. I need to re remember that he is worthy of my voice and my actions and my life. And so I sing to remember the greatness of God, the superiority of God to everything else that I may initially desire. He'll never let me down. He'll never fail him. It's him I want and I need. See, the solution to this world's problems, if we come back to our beginning here, is not to deny the existence of evil. It's to actually acknowledge evil, but then to turn to someone who overcame it. If you want proof that evil is real, all you have to do is look back to the events of last week. Just look to the cross. An innocent man dying, crucified, suffering the worst death imaginable, that he never deserved to die. Evil. And he did it for me, for us, because our sin is real, and that evil needed to be paid for. You want proof, though, that God overcame evil? Look to the empty tomb. Evil did not conquer Jesus. Sin did not conquer Jesus. Death and sin were not the last word. Jesus was. And so I know that despite the evil in this world, despite the evil in my heart, that if I look to Jesus, if I turn to him, I trust in him, he can overcome that evil too. Um, let, me, let me close by telling you this story. In, in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, I reference this book enough. I hope that one day you'll read it. Um, he describes a, a man named Christian. Christian is on his journey to the celestial city, heaven. And, and Christian, all of a sudden, is captured by a giant. The giant's name is Despair. 
So the giant despair, he locks Christian up in a castle called Doubting. And in that castle of Doubting, Christian begins to remember all of his failures, all the evil he's committed in life. He, he begins to question really whether or not he deserves to actually be in the celestial city. Gradually, Christian begins to wither and faint when all of a sudden, he remembers something. He remembers he has a key. And so he says this, What a fool I have been to lie like this in a stinking dungeon when I could have just as well walked free. In my chest pocket, close to his heart, I have a key called promise that will, I am thoroughly persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, his companion on this trip, this is good news, my good brother. Do immediately take it out of your chest pocket and try it. And then Christian took the key from his chest and began to try the lock of the dungeon door. And as he turned the key, the bolt unlocked and the door flew open with ease so that Christian and Hopeful immediately came out. Some of you might feel right now like you're in that dungeon. Looking at your life, seeing your sin, your failures, your shortcomings, wondering, God, I just don't know if, if I've done enough. I, I see all of my mess-ups, and I don't know if you would have me. The solution, Christian says, it is not to work harder. It's not to try and clean up your life. The, the, the hope The solution is to remember that you have a key in your pocket and that key is the promise of God. Cling to Jesus. Cling to him who is faithful, who says, I died on your behalf and I rose on your behalf. Trust in me. You can acknowledge your sin before God. You can acknowledge your sin before Jesus. You can repent and turn from it, but trust in Jesus and let his goodness be enough. Let his work be enough. That is our hope. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you truly have overcome the evil in our lives, in our hearts, God. God, I pray you would direct our gaze to Jesus, the one who is greater, the one who is faithful, the one who is superior to anything else this world has to offer. I pray you would be him that we want more than anything else. And so God, help us to flee idolatry by the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I wanna let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you wanna get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.